first I'd like to thank you for coming tonight. I'd like to um, offer a perspective on meditation practice and a perspective on the age-old question of how that relates to the rest of our lives. But rather than think of this from the standpoint of integration, which is often a question that's asked after retreats, I'd actually like to look at this whole question of meditation and life and what the Buddha taught in a very fundamental way. Um, I believe that the, the Buddha really ad- addressed and came to understand the human experience in an elemental way. When he said, life is suffering, what did he mean by that? You know, He, he talked about Birth is suffering, death is suffering, aging, disease, death. And so he was talking about biological suffering. You know, he was talking about the suffering of just having this body and of not getting the sensory things you want, the sensory pleasures, uh, or being stuck with those that you don't like, painful things. So there was the, you know, that whole biological and sensory aspect. And he talked about psychological suffering of pain, grief, lamentation, despair, distress, and so on. And he talked about being separated from, from the loved and being sort of stuck with the unloved, which was both, you know, uh, had to do with the sensory, but it also had to do with people. And in brief, he said, the aggregates you know, the, the five aggregates of clinging, which I'm not going to go into in detail, but just to say that he looked at what it is to be a human in this way of saying, wow, we perceive and we see, we smell, we taste, we touch, we think, we have this consciousness and so on, and out of that we build this clinging, grasping life that uh, brings us a lot of pain. And that can seem very abstract, but I'd like to tell you a story that reveals something about that that I think uh, could bring it home. Because what I'm going to speak about actually tonight is what I call social suffering, uh, which is really just that aspect of the Dhamma that has to do with our... Uh, relationships with other humans, not just our relationship with ourselves or with our own physical bodies, not just our relationships with, um, uh, you know, pleasant sensations and unpleasant sensations, but that encompasses the pleasant and unpleasant emotional sensations associated with people. Because I don't know about your experience, but my experience is that Uh, If I think about the stressful times in my life, I'd say most of them have to do with people. So if you can relate to that, then uh, you can relate to this notion that social suffering is a very substantial subset of the broadest 
dukkha or the broadest pain and suffering that we could, you know that we might uh, contemplate when we contemplate these teachings about freedom. So I'm lying in bed one morning, and it was very early. It was summer, so it was already light, but it was probably about 5, 6 a.m., I don't know. And light was coming in through the skylight and shining on a beam that ran across the top of my bed. My wife was asleep in the bed next to me. And because I contemplate these things, call me weird, I was uh, looking at the beam and the light on the beam and I was noticing how there's a visible object and then there's this eye that works and then that comes together with my knowing of seeing and in that moment of contact there's this thing called seeing, you know. And then I would notice that the I am seeing sort of comes up right away. I don't just stay in fluid seeing, you know. It's sort of a me sitting there having this experience. So I'd go back, calm down again, go back to looking. And then I did the same thing with lying down. I was lying in bed, and I feel the body. And so the body was this working sense organ, you know, touching. And touching the bed. And then there was just the awareness of the touching that came together, and that was the experience in the moment, and then that would be me, you know, lying there. So I'd back up again, calm down, clear the mind, come together with the experience again. And I'm doing this, you know, sort of seeing what this is like. These, You know, the Buddha talked about this stuff. And uh, so I was really just living with it on this beautiful, sunny summer morning. And then my wife rolls over, and her foot touches my leg. And right in that moment, this feeling of happiness arose. Oh, you know, my wife is here. And it was really very sweet that she was touching my leg. And then I said, wait a minute. You know, it's touching. There's a sense organ, you know. And there's the, you know, my sense organ worked. My skin was working fine. And... And there's the, con- you know, the uh, physical contact, and then the contact with awareness. And then there was this proliferation that I had no control over whatsoever of the happiness of, you know, this, uh, from all the emotional background, of course. And so I calmed down again and just was aware of the touching. And then the next thing that happened is she rolls back over and her foot's no longer touching me. And before I knew it, there was unhappiness. And I felt, you know, um, just, oh, darn, you know. (laughs) And uh, so I'm watching that and I'm sort of being with just that experience and then I said, oh, you know, whatever. So I, I reach out my leg to touch her. <laughs> and uh, she's half asleep. And all she really wants to do is sleep. So when I reach out to touch her, she pulls away. You know, she's just like, you know, I'm going to sleep here. She wasn't awake and going to sleep. She was really just reflexive, you know. And immediately, before I knew what was going on, I felt rejected by a sleeping woman. (laughs) So I'm I'm watching this, 
And I'm saying, okay, let's see what this experience is. And if you look at what was happening, of course, that, you know, the whole background of um, my social conditioning, my, my interpersonal and social conditioning was coming up into the moment so that this simple uh, act of physics, actually, you know, this thing touching another thing and all that comes of that became not just touching, not just me, but me and all of the constructions associated with her and other, right? And that this coming together brought up all at first, oh, my beloved touches me, you know, so it was this happiness. Then, oh, darn, she's not touching me. And then the wanting more, right? Wanting, craving. And then the instant feeling of rejection when this was denied me, And the feeling of rejection had to do with who knows what conditioned feeling of rejection and loneliness I had grown up with or brought into this life, right? Such is the nature of social suffering. It's built upon this foundation of being a sentient being, but also this foundation of being a, let's call it a, 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 a interpersonally sensitive being, not just a, a sensorily sensitive being. And so just as we are creatures living in this complex, changing, impermanent environment where we won't find lasting physical pleasure because it's not the nature of the organism, it doesn't work physiologically, We cannot find lasting pleasure. But we have this complex changing environment. And so are we complex psychological creatures in a complex social environment. And we can't find lasting pleasure in that either. Again, it's not possible. There's the sort of the dulling that happens, there's the expectations that happen, there's further desires and hungers that are deeper than any particular satisfaction in any moment. And it's always changing. So this dukkha that we often come to meditation and understand as personal dukkha, has a very large um, component of interpersonal dukkha, interpersonal suffering, interpersonal pain. And if indeed the cause of suffering is tanha, or craving, or hunger, so the cause of social suffering is social hunger. The Buddha talked about three cravings, three fundamental hungers that underlie all of this suffering that we experience. And of course, he explicated these primarily in personal terms and related them largely to our um, 
uh, building up of self-concept that's at the basis of all of it and of, of wanting pleasure and not wanting pain. And a lot of that, especially in a time where survival was so challenging, was wanting, you know, enough food, wanting good tasting food, and wanting sex and wanting, um, you know, warmth and comfort. And I mean, if you read the, the suttas, you'll see, you know, the, the snakes and the, and the bugs and the heat. And I mean, he, dukkha was dukkha, you know, this is, <laughs> you know, none of this. I can't uh, get a good cappuccino anywhere. <laughs> this was really serious dukkha he was talking about. Snakes and death by by you know, animals and, you know, all kinds of things. So this um, personal dukkha was largely explicated as, as being caused by these uh, personal hungers, you know, of, of a, a, lot, a lot of it having to do with the senses. But if we look at, if we look at interpersonal, suffering, then it not only makes sense to conclude that this is based on interpersonal hunger, but I see it every time I teach meditation where people come in contact with each other in a way other than silence, right? And I see it in my life, just like that story I just told you. I see the interpersonal suffering, and I I look at my own life. I see interpersonal hunger. I look at you know, I used to be a musician, composer, and I look at, well, geez, why am I doing this, you know? Is there some kind of hunger? I'll tell you a story about that in a moment. So, he talked about these three interpersonal cravings or hungers. The craving for uh, sensory pleasures, the craving for being, the first is kamatanha, then bhavatanha, and vibhavatanha, or the craving for non-being. And I was contemplating very deeply what he meant by these hungers and how they would really shed light on our interpersonal experience. Use something useful, you know, something really useful. And it became clear, again, not just through thought, but through my experience and then through all the teaching I've done, that the sensory pleasure really has to do with emotional pleasure. But it's the emotional pleasure derived from our contact with people. And so this is uh, the, the aspect of relationship that is, please stimulate me, please entertain me. It's what I call the relational tickle, you know. Uh, Hi, how you doing? I'm doing just fine, you know. And the whole, you know, how about them Mets? Or, you know, that's a very nice jacket you're wearing. Thank you very much. You know, just all of the uh, back and forth where we say, you exist. Oh, yeah, I do, really. Oh, so do you. You're very nice. Yes, are you. So are you, too. And we we satisfy each other, uh, each other's um, need for stimulation. And if you, you know, I was thinking of when I was... uh, uh, time recently out to, out to uh, dinner with my wife and two other couples. It was a kind of really traditional social kind of thing, you know. And I'm watching the conversation, and 
you know, we were talking about all kinds of things, politics and kids and houses and frustrations and so on. Some of it was really, you know, emotional, uh, emotional support and some of it was an exchange of valuable information. But there were so many moments of, uh, you know, saying something funny and every, yeah, kind of like a wink, like, you know, that's really cool and you're cool and this is funny. And, you know, all of these, <laughs> all of these uh, sort of contracts we have about how we relate, which is, okay, now I'm going to wait to say something really clever. And then when the moment comes, I say it, you know, and everybody laughs. And then it's like they're stimulated. And then... I'll kind of wait for them to stimulate me, and they stimulate me. And uh, the the uh, nature of social entertainment, of course, is that we don't have to really confront <laughs> a lot of other things in life that we might be confronted. And it's also, of course, has a side that is completely innocent and completely wholesome, in my opinion, anyway. That's really just uh, kind of kindness. You know, I'm I'm here and saying these funny things because I think you'll like it. You know, there's a there's a there's kind of a goodness of heart about that. And and when we complain about our kids to each other or something, it's we're really listening with compassion too. It's it's not all quite as dour, as I'm saying, but it does have this element, this entertainment. Um, but I'll tell you, it was when I came to the bhava tanha and the vibhava tanha, the desire for being and the desire for non-being, that things really came alive because I recognized myself in it. I began to recognize, you know, everybody I knew in it. And I began to see in my retreats that, oh, wow, there's the bhava and vibhava tanha, you know. And so, see if this resonates anything in you, you know. Bhava tanha, or the desire for being, what is that in when we desire to be with another? In other words, it's not just the, des- the urge to survive, which is really the classical uh, interpretation of bhava tanha. It's the urge to survive, shall we say, psychologically or, or personally, where you're um, my source of survival. I seek, to sur- I seek love. I seek acknowledgement. I seek um, uh, my being is validated by you. So if I do something and it doesn't garner any response or any praise, I'm crestfallen. If I, uh, uh, there's some, some emptiness in me that is seeking to be shored up, whether you want to interpret it psychologically, like because I wasn't loved when I was a child or I didn't get enough attention, or you want to think of it karmically, that there's something that came into this life, or if you want to think of it just in the most pure Dharma sense, that there is this hunger. And don't worry about where it came from. But let's just be practical here, because that's really, that's my, where I'm coming from, is what can we really learn about this that's useful in terms of letting go and freedom? Okay. And 
what is useful, at least has been useful to me, is to recognize the ways that I am with you seeking my validation through you, seeking the love that I would want or seeking the, um, uh, the building up of this self that I crave, that I hunger for. That's the craving to be. And hence the you know, little thing I was going to say about being a composer. For me, music was a magical kind of spiritual practice of coming into the moment. And yet still, there were many, many times when the most prominent experience I had was, you know, uh, am I being recognized? Am I being validated for doing this? And it was obviously had very little to do with being in the moment. It had to do with this Baba Tanha, this hunger to be. And again, we can see this also in very mundane ways where we turn to our friends, uh, we, we turn to our office mates, uh, we go to succeed in business so we can be respected. Because if we don't have that identity, then we're no one. Uh, we turn to our artwork or we turn to our political uh, activism as a means of being seen. And that doesn't mean that the activism itself isn't for the good. It doesn't mean that at all, because these things are not unalloyed. They're, they're all combined with wholesome and unwholesome, painful and generous movements. But to recognize this desire to be, this social desire to be, this interpersonal desire to be, is to say, okay, I've identified this hunger. Now, maybe I can learn to let go, which I'll talk about in a moment. So then there's the desire for non-being. And what is that? What is the desire for non-being? Well, the classical interpretation of Vibhavatanha, the absolute most traditional, is the desire to get out of samsara, to be done with these rounds of rebirths. I want out of all of this mess. And the problem there, of course, is that there's I want out of this mess. There's, it's still diluted. Then still in the traditional realm of Vibhavatanha is the suicide wish. That's stretching it out from that really traditional framework to the suicide wish. But the suicide wish is really escape, right? So what do we see interpersonally in the nature of escape? What do we see interpersonally in the nature of shrinking from experience? We see social anxiety. We see feeling inadequate, unworthy, fearful turning away from experience. And this shrinking, this vibhavatanha, this desire for non-being, is 
lives in some form in all of us. Some of us where, you know, might be stronger on the desire to be, the, the, you know, fill me up, give me the recognition, see me, please see me. Whereas the Vibhavatan is, please don't see me. You know, I'm going to back away. I, I, I can't stand to put myself out in front of you, to be available to you. Now, the, the Bhavatanha can't be, the, the desire to be can't be available to others because he or she is so wrapped up in himself or herself, yeah? Whereas the desire for non-being and the shrinking can't, that, this person can't be available because they're scared. They're, they're afraid that they'll be seen as being unworthy and unlovable, and that's just not okay. And of course, it's all based on self-concept, which we can just sort of coarsely say, oh, that's a delusion anyway, so don't talk about it. But, hello, welcome to this interpersonal reality that we live in, whether it's delusional or not, in the same way that we want sensory pleasures, we want these things, and that's just part of the human condition. These hungers are part of what we carry with us that keep us so locked and confused. So you've got the truth of suffering, truth of interpersonal suffering, social suffering. You've got the truth of the cause in these hungers, yes? Well, we all know this great punchline, right? We've got the third noble truth, which is the truth of the cessation of these hungers, which is the, means the, leads to the cessation of suffering. So the cessation of social hunger is the basis for the cessation of social suffering, social pain. And it's, as, as the Buddha said, it is just this cessation, this relinquishment, this abandoning of the hunger. So think about what it would be like, just to get a sense of, you know, what this... I'm, I, I, let me tell you something. I'm not going to talk about social nirvana, okay? I save that for my California talk. <laughs> it's more, more money out there. Uh, so I'm not going to speak about it in those terms. I'm really, because as soon as you say it's a, a thing that you want to go for, like a, a, a nibbana or a, nirva, a nirvana, then you make it into, a, you reify it. You turn it into something that becomes a goal and you fall short of the goal or you imagine the goal a certain way. It gets very confusing, even in these personal terms. In interpersonal terms, it gets downright sticky. But if we simply stick with the most pristine uh, teaching of the Third Noble Truth, it's cessation. The cessation of social hunger. Okay? So what would it be like, then, to be free from the desire for social entertainment? What would it be like to be with someone and not have to be stimulated, not have to be entertained, not have to be made to feel good by that other person? What would it be like 
to not have to be validated, to not have to be loved in the sense of need, in the sense of lack. What would that be like to be with a person and have absolutely no um, hunger but to be stable and centered and at peace, satisfied? What would it be like to have no shrinking, no fear, no anxiety, no inadequacy, no self-criticism, to not murder yourself with feelings of unworthiness when you're with another person? What would that be like? And so if you are without any of these hungers at all, or any of the many combinations that we can imagine would exist in this complex human heart, what would that be like? Think of the extent of loneliness, of addiction, the extent of uh, uh, preoccupation with stimulating and running away that is makes up so much of our interpersonal lives and, of course, our personal lives. And if that's gone and there's presence and stability, what would that be like? I remember I, I had a, 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 a involvement with a small community that, like many communities, you know, sometimes ran into some kind of friction. And it so happens there was someone in the community who was uh, out of balance and started saying just horrible, horrible things about me. And I was pretty identified with my role in this community. And so it really hurt to have these terrible things said about me because it, you know, this was my, my bhava tanha, you know, my urge to be was being attacked, you know. That was me, that reputation, that identity. I bought into that identity, right? That was why it was hurtful. That's why it hurt so much. And it hurt for a long time. But I remember it was about a year later and I remember waking up one morning and sitting down to having my herb tea, you know, nice, quiet morning. Sat down to meditate. It was still dark out. And I sat down. Something was different. Something was going on. And I noticed that there was a stillness. And it was as if a blender, a food blender, in the on position had been sewn into my body and like was grinding up food for the last year, you know, and had just been turned off. And I was left, it's sort of like, you know when a refrigerator is running and it turns off and the room just sings with silence? It was like that. It was so beautiful. And this was sort of like just 
to offer you a little bit of comparison of this agitated state that has to do with the hunger and the peaceful state and the bliss of that peace when the hunger is gone, or at least temporarily gone. You know, I mean, I don't know. But it really was quite remarkable to me and transformative, not that just that moment, but the whole experience of having the identity, you know, hacked away at like that, you know. Um, so, so we've got this cessation of interpersonal hunger, but now let's get practical. The fourth noble truth was all about getting practical. It's the path to the cessation. It's the how. It's the what are you going to do about it. And the understanding or the perspective is probably a better word here. The perspective that I'm sharing with you on this path, on this whole, these four noble truths and the Eightfold Path really arose as a result of just living and teaching and thinking and being. Um, but a, a, a tremendous amount of the fuel for understanding came from teaching an interpersonal meditation practice, insight dialogue. So for a number of years now, I've been uh, teaching insight. I've been teaching Vipassana for about 22 years, just traditional, silent, personal meditation. For about the last, I don't know, seven, eight years, uh, I've been cultivating first with a colleague and then in the last, uh, uh, say, six, seven years, just um, in different retreats that I teach and so on in groups, this interpersonal meditation practice. So I've been with groups of people who have been calming down and looking at the nature of experience when they're with other people, right? And you know how you go on meditation retreat, or maybe if you haven't been on retreat, you just go to sit in meditation and there's a lot of stuff that's going on and maybe you can let go of some of it, maybe not. But especially on retreat, you really begin to live with the truth of suffering. You really, maybe the body is suffering or maybe you know, you're remembering things you don't want to remember or whatever your personal experience is. Well, the suffering that I saw coming up at these interpersonal or, you know, meditation retreats that included talking, I came to realize was interpersonal suffering, social suffering. And so all of what I'm telling you, in addition to being based on my own experiences, being, is based on my observations of being with people who, are, who have the courage to... Uh, well, first of all, to look at this aspect of what the Buddha taught in a way that is not um, traditional, but is, uh, you can see, I hope you can see anyway, that it's based completely on these, you know, um, the most traditional teachings, um, but who have the courage to be present with their own experience, even when they're with other people, 
which is a lot. It's a lot. And so what was revealed was, you know, a lot of the storming and a lot of the pain and a lot of the fear that comes up with other people. And if you want even a glimpse of that, how about let's just take just literally, I'm not going to sort of, um, uh, uh, you know, hijack you into practice right away. Uh, so don't worry, those who are particularly shy. I don't want you to feel uh, that you've been invaded. But what you might do is, especially from those in the front to turn around and those in the, and look at, just look at some other people now, really just for a moment, and see how that feels. Can you do that? Make sure you catch at least one other person's eye definitively. And see if there's anything like, you know, uh, any of these hungers, hunger for stimulation and entertainment, for feeling good, hunger for acknowledgement, fear. Any, do you feel any pulling away? Any fear of intimacy? That's probably enough. I don't want to. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a good way to put it. It's like, what is going on here? I'm comfortable on my cushion. Thank you very much. I didn't sign up for this. But isn't it just part of the human experience? I mean, I haven't said anything that's like either heretical or outside of what I least think is just everyday experience, right? I mean, is there anyone here who's not a son or a daughter? (laughs) So you were all born in relationship, right? So I know at least you've got, you know, that background. I suspect you've had other relationships in your life, but there's at least that one. And I suspect it's rich, interesting, complex, filled with pain and joy, just, you know, because that's how it is. So, the path really grows out of that human experience. So if there's interpersonal suffering, interpersonal hunger, and the cessation is freedom, then there's an interpersonal path. Yeah? I mean, that's logic. But also, I can tie this, again, directly to experience. Because I've been really exploring and, uh, I guess, helping the emergence of a path of um, meditation, especially, is what I'm referring to right now. But I'll talk about the whole path path of meditation that is not just individual, that is interpersonal. And, but if you look again, let's start, let's, you know, we've been pretty conservative and been really, you know, developing this slowly. Let's just take, you know, the Eightfold Path, right view, right intention or right mental direction, right speech, 
right action, right livelihood or right lifestyle, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration or calm unification of mind. So these must all exist for interpersonal as well as personal practice. So we can ask ourselves, what is the interpersonal practice of right view? What is the personal practice of right view, you may wonder. Uh, And in fact, it would be too much, I think, for us to go over all of this. I've done this, and then sometimes people's heads are spinning at the end. uh, (laughs) So I'm trying to be a little more um, conservative about how much ground we can really cover. But... Let me just take a couple of examples so you know what I'm talking about, okay? Right view is not just the view uh, that that recognizes the validity of the Four Noble Truths and the uh, truth of karma, rebirth. I mean, if you go to the discourses, this is what right view is. It's not just the view. Right view is part of the path, yes? That must mean it's a practice, that must mean there's something that you can do to cultivate it, if you cultivate the path, yeah? So you can cultivate right view, and specifically, I mean, the Buddha said uh, morality contributes to that, tranquility and insight contribute to that, but he also was very specific in saying discussion and study contribute to right view. So... uh, it personally, one can you know read things that teach one about the nature of the human experience, whether it's in Buddhistic terms or not. If it has a basic right view regarding self and non-self and you know that kind of thing, go for it. You know that kind of study. But what is it to do that interpersonally and have it be part of this noble eightfold path? Well, one example, uh, a practice that I've been cultivating, I don't know if any of you know this practice, Lectio Divina, it's a Christian practice. I've kind of adapted it for the uh, uh, study of the discourses. Um, and it's basically a way of reading the discourses, taking it into your experience in a meditative manner, actually in meditation, frankly, reading coming into the body, being present with what unfolds in experience, going back into it. And then I've developed that dialogically so that two or more people, small groups, can explore in this practice that I had called Lectio Dharma, but it's, I'm actually much happier right now with just Dharma contemplation because then people don't really think, why do I have to know Latin to do this? Um, but it's really a matter of... of dialogically exploring what do these what do these words mean what are the truths behind the words how does this unfold in my experience now you know not just in theory but now so that we're looking at not just a uh, intellectual practice but one that's much more like uh, combining the inquiry aspect of vipassana with the st- uh, study of the suttas with the benefits of someone else's insight and understanding and even having them help us calm down as we study, you know, because they're being present too. They're bringing their uh, 
energy into the moment. So there's an example of an interpersonal practice of right view, yeah? Let me skip ahead, because I want to make sure we have plenty of time for questions, or if you want to try some experiential stuff, we can do that. Uh, Let's go to right mindfulness. Now, right mindfulness is something that gets a lot of press these days. A lot of people think about it. A lot of people talk about it. A lot of people do it. Um, And, of course, the premier teaching on that is the Satipatthana Sutta. But let's just, you know, just see what this means in a human way. I keep bringing this back to the discourses. In part, I have to admit, it's a sort of a defensive maneuver because as, as much as I take this stuff to be plainly evident, for those of you who might have a very strong grounding in the traditional teachings, it's important, I guess, for me to at least have the door be open for you to not see this interpersonal aspect of these teachings as being um, uh, something that can be easily disvalued. I want you to at least contemplate it. Uh, But the essential aspect of it is human anyway, which is to be aware of, mindful of, in the moment of experience, the body, pleasant and unpleasant feelings, and uh, moods, emotions, mind states, and uh, sort of thoughts against the whole, or phenomena against the whole background of experience that is um, was offered by the Buddha for looking at these things. But the interpersonal practice of right mindfulness is just as um, simple and just as direct. It's just not done alone with one's eyes closed. So if we're talking about being aware of the body, then it would be that if you and I are um, talking, let's say, and that I find myself reactive and all kind of bought into my stories or all excited about yours or something like that, that I engage in a practice of stepping out of that reactivity, pausing is what I call that, you know, just pausing out of the reaction, and relaxing enough to get present and sort of accepting it as it is, accepting the reaction, and then opening my awareness that, so that it encompasses you and me both. But my grounding when I do this is in the body. I'm aware of this body sitting. So here we have a meditation practice, and you know, I've just described a little tiny piece of it, a meditation practice where there's awareness of this body sitting, awareness of the reactions in the body, as a foundation that, that points, me, points to me, where is this moment? Where is awareness? Where, what is the foundation for awareness in this moment? It can be so confusing when I'm sort of lost in the universe of his probably very interesting story. 
and I'm believing in his self and I'm kind of having myself stimulated, you know, all that stuff I was talking about. Well, let's get real. How do you, how do you, how do you practice the mindfulness? How do you find yourself in the moment when you're in the incredible challenge of this interpersonal relationship in the moment? Well, there's the body, kaya nupasana, just the body, awareness of the body in the moment. And if, if, if we look at the rest of them, let's say awareness of mind states or moods or you know, however you, you interpret citta nupasana, well, I could do the same thing. So I'm in dialogue with someone, we're talking, and then I notice that I'm you know, not in the moment, I'm not grounded in the present, that these hungers are emerging whatever way they're emerging, whether it's the you know, hunger for stimulation or for being or I'm shrinking away in sort of fear and so on. But in that moment, I recognize that. And what do I do? When I step into mindfulness, I'm letting go, right? Isn't that what that is? Isn't that what we do in Vipassana? Is in the moment we wake up to the confused, story-making, um, self-making uh, dance of the mind. Isn't that waking up, letting go? Isn't that letting go of the story? Isn't that letting go into the moment? And that's what the, that third noble truth points to, right? That's where freedom is if we let go. So now I'm letting go of the stories, of the hunger, of the confusion that's arisen in this interchange and I'm finding myself in the moment aware of these moods that are arising completely out of my control, right? It's just all conditioned. So there's no self there that's doing it. It's just happening. And so I've broken the spell, yes? I've broken the spell of the self. So from a practical standpoint, so there you have the interpersonal practice of right mindfulness. From a practical standpoint, a lot of this letting go can happen in silent personal practice. It's a very, very powerful thing to do. In my own experience, the letting go that I was doing in my silent personal meditation practice, which has been, you know, almost 30 years now, I saw a real difference when I started doing interpersonal practice. And a place where I saw this difference was in, let's call it the rate of change. The, the uh, power of, that tr- of the transformative process of this letting go of interpersonal suffering was at times stunning. It wasn't always easy, as you can imagine, for those of you who have been on retreat. It's not all bliss. There's some bliss, and that's pretty nice, actually. But there's also, you know, you mean that's part of my background, too? You know, it's not necessarily, it's all, it's not all comfort in there. But when the letting go is very wonderful. So when I had the opportunity to confront things that came up interpersonally that may not have come up so, so forcefully, so rapidly, 
so clearly, might I add, if I were just involved in my personal silent practice. Can you see that? Can you see how when you're with another person, certain things are really going to put themselves in your face? I mean, isn't that why spiritual communities are so powerful? It's in your face. Well, you know, if you want the freedom, you need to look at what's causing, what, you know, what the bars of the prison are made out of. And part of what they're made out of is our social conditioning and our interpersonal conditioning. All of the me-making that we do at home and at work and in our minds. All the roles we take on, yeah? All the judgments of others and ourselves that are so separating and that feed the loneliness and fear. We get to see that. We get to say... Do I want to hang on to this? Woe unto him or her who says, yeah, because it'll, it'll help you hang on. We know that place. We know that place of closeness and fear, and it's actually the opening is scary at first. This is like when I had you turn around, it's like, ooh, you know, it's a little bit, it's a little bit sometimes not necessarily comfortable to be fully present with someone, you know? It's like, wow, there you are. Here I am. Not shrinking away, but also not grabbing. That's not, that's an unknown. The fear, the desire, the need is known. So the interpersonal path is a path of letting go. Just like the personal path of practice is a path of letting go. And when you let go, you don't have to make joy. You don't have to seek joy. You don't have to seek to create loving kindness or compassion. Because when you're free of self-concern, even temporarily free, then the heart is present and vibrating in the presence of others. And that presence of others arouses compassion. It arouses love. And just being free from the pain is, well, the word often used in the suttas, translated in English, is bliss. Buddha talked about bliss. He liked bliss. (laughs) But it was not a selfish bliss. It was just what was left. So we're present for others. We're present for those those who are suffering. And there's a wisdom in it. The wisdom that emerges when we're not confused by the hunger. Very natural.
So I think that's all I'll say for now. And I was told to leave some space for those who want to leave. And then if there wants to be questions or discussion, we can do that. So I think uh, I'll leave that space now. And then we'll continue in just a moment. Thank you. That seems about right. Was that a question there? Actually, it's a request. Uh, Yeah, I could do that. Um, Is that uh, something that is desired widely? You you guys want that? Yeah? Um, You know what might be a good, good thing to do? Or you know what we could do? If you want, we could do that. And then, and then also leave a little bit of time for questions after that, so that you, your questions now will be grounded in experience. Does that sound like something that uh, the hearty souls who have remained are? Okay. Well, in that case, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Enjoy your hunger. Um, Okay, so let me preface this by saying that just because you happen to be here and the first question was this request doesn't mean you have to do this. Uh, So I want you to feel free to just, when people go into, I'm going to put you in pairs because it's actually a lot easier than trying to hold a large group in your awareness. That's something you can develop to over the course of even a short retreat, but it's not a good place to start. So if you don't want to do any practice, which we're only going to do a few minutes, um, then just sort of let that be known just by not getting up and finding a partner. Okay? And please know also that just by being present when we do this, that you're contributing to the practice. You know, you're contributing to the experience. So, no, no problem. So, the first thing that we want to do is actually to go into pairs. And before you do this, I just want to point something out. Um, these um, hungers and fears are ongoing, you know. So they're present now, yeah? Um, So if you find yourself not, you know, uh, feeling like, um, you know, you want to do it and you're going to do it, but when you go to, you know, hook up with someone, you know, you're sort of like, ooh, I don't know. Or you're like really eager, like, ooh, this is probably a really cool person. Either way, it's a hunger. (laughs) And it's okay. You have to understand, this is not like a bad thing. This is the human experience. Would you call it a bad thing to say that uh, I like sweet tastes? No. It's just part, you know, I I like some salt on my brown rice. You know, it's it's just part of uh, our conditioned experience. It's no big deal. So it's not a good, bad thing. 
no morality about this. It's just like everything else, cause and effect. Because then when you don't get what you want, you're not happy, you know, it's, you know the whole cycle. So um, watch that, you know, watch how it feels to hook up and to not hook up and, and that kind of thing. And the instructions right now are only to find a person, it would probably be best, easier for you if it's someone you don't know, believe it or not. Because the mental constructions that we carry with people we do know are like a skyscraper compared to just the generic constructions of male, female, certain age, you know, those we can deal with a little better rather than, you know, my boyfriend, my wife, my sister, and so on. Those are big. So um, I want you to find this other person. I'm going to ask you to stand up in a moment. Find this other person, sit down comfortably facing them, and then I'll give you instructions. You might want to also use the whole room so that you're not so close that it's, you know, you're always listening to someone else's voice. Okay? So please stand up. And then... For those who are standing, those who are sitting, please just feel comfortable being in peace. And hook up with someone, it doesn't matter who, find a place to sit and sit facing them. And hopefully we have an even number of people. Okay, go ahead. into personal silent meditation for a moment. Just feel your body sitting. You don't need to look at me. I won't do anything very interesting, I promise. Um, so just feel your body as you sit there. Be aware of the sitting posture. Now inhabit the body, really fully. Inhabit the body. sitting and just come home to the moment this very moment you just feel the body sitting now in just a moment I'm going to ask you to uh, enter into conversation this person that you're sitting with. And the sort of home base, you know, the terra firma, 
the earth, the ground, is this body. So it really helps if you recognize that now. Feel the posture of the body. The whole body is sitting. So, I'm only going to um, have time for a brief introduction, so I want to give you this rather simple instruction. Pause, relax, open is the center of this insight dialogue practice. And we can just touch on it. But let me tell you what it means. To pause means simply to notice that the mind is uh, stirred up or reacting, engaged with its own fabrications and so on. To pause is stepping out of those fabrications, stepping out of those reactions, sort of waking up. when you wake up in the moment and there's the body sitting, notice the body sitting and relax into it. And then continue your engagement with this other person by opening the awareness wider to encompass this other person. Now this opening, for those of you who have done metta practice, loving kindness practice, it's the expanding of awareness beyond this personal shell. It's the opening beyond from the internal to the external. The internal and one's thoughts and sensations and so on to encompass the external, to encompass awareness of an other. And there's the whole experience unfolding. So pause is stepping out of reaction and calming down into the moment and opening back up and continuing the conversation. So to show you what that means in experience, let me just guide you for just a moment. So whatever is going on, whatever thoughts or anticipation of this meditation or any of that, pause and step out of that and feel the body sitting right now. Calm down, meet this experience with acceptance. So the awareness is very clear, but very relaxed. Pause. Relax. Now I want you to open your eyes and open your awareness beyond just your personal inner world. So now your awareness encompasses visually another person, but also you can feel the expansion from just being aware of yourself to being aware of another externally. The mind opens, the heart opens, and encompasses the other. So now, there's mindfulness, 
Yes. And there's this ex calm acceptance, yes, of not only the inner, but the outer. Pause, relax, open. Now, before I ring the bell, which will begin the dialogue, and then I'll ring it again to end it, or to at least pause it, I want to point out that this person in front of you and you have one very profound experience in common. You were both born. Pretty basic. So this person in front of you has a mother, had a mother, one way or another, came through a birth canal, is born into a family, into personality, is born into the need to survive, is born into the whole uh, personality of um, uh, his or her culture as well. This, all these aspects of being born, this person that you're looking at is born. This person in front of you was a gooey, slimy baby. <laughs> Connected by an umbilicus to a mother. Fed by the breast. Taken away from the breast. And so on and so on. Very human. So what's it like to see that in yourself? What's it like to see that in this other person? It doesn't have to be profoundly personal what you say now. I'm not asking anybody to spill their guts. It's just human. I see you. What does it feel like to see this, to be with this truth? Again, you know, don't worry about the nature of your conversation. As It doesn't have to reveal anything. It's just human, just humanizing everyone here, including myself. I was slimy too. So again, pause, feel the body, please. Inhabit the body, internal awareness, feel the body sitting. Relax, accept whatever's present, Open the awareness out to encompass the other. Expand and open. And then meet this other person, this other born person, in this moment of dialogue. And speak. Speak what arises for you. Don't worry about whether it's right or, you know, special or any of that. And whenever you find yourself caught, pause, relax.
stimulation and interest, the fear, the desire. And you pause and step out of the reactive excitement. It's just be in the moment with acceptance. And again, you can pause, relax, and open at any time during the conversation. As you meet this person with whom you share this human experience, pause, relax, and open, and just speak to that truth, truth of how it is to meet this other born being.
noticing the reverberation into this moment of that experience, that interpersonal experience. 
center in the body. Can you notice by contrast how being with another pulls us out of that center in agitation, excitement, interest? And so just one last time, we won't go into dialogue, but I just want you to look at the person you're with. Go ahead and open your eyes. Be aware of the body sitting. Feel centered in the moment. And just imagine for just a moment what it would be like to be free of interpersonal hunger, to be free of interpersonal suffering, to not pull away, to not grab, to be at peace, not just with this person, but with all beings. And imagine a society where all people have put a priority on being free from hunger rather than trying to satisfy all the hungers. What would that be like? What would a free society be like? A society of compassion and loving kindness and ease. Offer your appreciations to your all too short meditation partner. So let's, uh, I think I'll continue because time is short. I know that you found a friend for life, <laughs> someone to satisfy all your hungers, <laughs> at least your hungers right now, right? So when I teach retreat, we do this for days. <laughs> well, imagine someone says, I go on a Vipassana retreat, I sit there for days. You know, I mean, that's pretty radical too, right? But uh, I see some very beautiful freedom blossom. I see the beauty of the transformation of letting go of hunger. It's exquisite. It makes me travel all over the country. <laughs> Actually, I've had some very beautiful intercultural experiences too. I've taught in India and Korea, you know, met with cultures where this, the individual ethos, you know, the, the big me is, is not, you know, is not as emphasized as this communal experience that you find in Asia. But there's still a lot of there's still a lot of uh, interpersonal suffering. So, let me ask you this. 
did your experience just now shed any light, personal experiential light on what I was talking about? Was that, did that fit for you? It wasn't a, a graft, it was really there. Well, good, that's great, I'm glad. Um, we don't have a lot of time. Uh, I'd like to take maybe just a question or two because, I mean, I can hang around a little bit afterwards, but I want to honor, I don't know, I want to honor the boundaries that I've already crossed. Uh, <laughs> it's five after nine. Um, so, Andy, what do you recommend? Just end? Um, Larry often stays and carries on and on until people have given up want to asking questions, so it's totally up to you. Oh, I see. Oh, so I'm not, there's not some contract I've broken here. You have to clear out by 10. Oh, yeah, I've got to be back to Barry, so. Um, well, good, then I feel a little bit less uh, evil. Um, so, okay, are there any questions? That's easy, yeah. I have trouble staying in the moment, staying in my body, and also staying in the conversation at the same time. Yeah. And I wonder, do you have suggestions for that? Yeah. Yeah, actually, I do. Um, it's the same. It's the Carnegie Hall story, you know, practice. And uh, as as sort of trivial as that sounds, um, we are really conditioned to pull out of the moment by so many things. Not the least of which is just our cultural norms. You know, I mean, if I'm talking to you and I'm looking at you. That's actually not normal. You know, much nor more normal is, you know, well, for, as a speaker, of course, it's different. But if, when I'm look, when I, if I were in conversation with you, you would think nothing of it if I were doing this. Nothing at all. Matter of fact, if I were looking right at you, it would probably freak you out. <laughs> <laughs> I have a story about that. I had a, uh, this guy, meditator, came to a five-day insight dialogue retreat I was teaching in California and uh, um, really got a lot out of it. But he missed the last morning because he really wanted to get back home and be with his wife and kids. So he gets back, bees with, you know, spends time with his wife and kids, and he sends me an email. And he said, uh, so I was uh, back with my family, and we were getting the kids dressed and everything like that. And my wife said to me, why are you looking at me like that? <laughs> and I said, what? And I was listening to you. Oh. I'm not used to it. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like if I give you my undivided attention, it almost can be like an attack. You know? Oh, 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 yeah. At that same retreat, someone came up with the, you know, uh, pausing at someone, you know? But it's really not like that. It's just that if you're centered and present um, and you're with someone, and you, and you literally uh, make it a priority to not be stirred and uh, at the command, really, of all of your hunger and fear, then this gradually grows. Just like in your traditional Vipassana practice, as you come to be centered and stable in the moment, and you practice letting go and coming back to the moment, Eventually, you become friends with the moment. It's like that. Um, 
And uh, a, a good sort of practical suggestion really is to, to take the body as ground. The reason the Buddha put body awareness first in the Satipatthana Sutta is because it is the grossest and most doable of the practices. The, this body, just this body. To be in the body, to be aware of the tensions in the body, the movements of the body, is something that we can get even when we're speaking. So if I'm looking at you and talking and I have to deal with all this conceptual answering with everybody looking at me, I can still be aware of this. I can still, you know, and then now I'm with you, I'm centered. Here I am. You know, just like that. So that can be very helpful. Um, And then the rest of it is, you know, a matter of, like I said, there's a lot of other aspects that we can attend to, different things we can cultivate as in any practice. But that's a good starting point. I think I saw on your, on your website some, some kind of chat room or something like that. Is that true? I, I'm an email guy, so what can you say about that? Well, this practice, believe it or not, actually found its birth in online uh, online meditation practice where we were meeting in um, real time and posting things very slowly, very mindfully, watching the effects on the body, relaxing. Well, actually, relaxing wasn't the big word then. It was more reflecting. It had a little, it was a little, little different tone to it, really. But um, to come into the moment in a chat room, basically, um, and my experience is that it takes to do that kind of practice a tremendous amount of commitment. Whereas when we're face to face, we can do this. Now, this practice I was talking about, the Dharma contemplation, that is that, that is ongoing. There's, as a matter of fact, there's another group forming. If anybody's interested, an online group that has a certain way of practice, and you can get the instructions and so on. It's amazingly powerful. It is, it's just exquisite because you have time over a period of a week because it's asynchronous. You have time over a period of a week to really soak into this teaching of the Buddha, see it unfold in your life, but also interact uh, with others in this very deep way. Um, you know, if, if, if someone has kind of a knee-jerk reaction of technology and Buddhism, then I think that, that that's unfortunate. You know, because the Buddha taught to his time. We're just teaching to ours, you know. When he used analogies of chariots, today he would talk about cars. You know, he used analogies of kings and ministers and princes and soap and the making of sesame oil. Really, all, and spears and metallurgy. He talked about, uh, about gold and how the goldsmith works to purify the metal. This is all his technolo- the technology of his time. So I, I don't see that in you. I'm just saying for those who really feel great aversion, well, you can see if that's painful. So that, that would be a good thing to do. You could get that information at meta.org uh, and contact this guy, Gary Steinberg, who's a longtime student of mine. It's a great practice. Yeah. When you were responding to the woman here, I uh, I became aware that 
when I when when I'm in a conversation with someone and they've initiated in some form, maybe they've called me to talk through something, I actually can quite, I think, uh, comfortably and easily come back to myself, mm -hmm. as you were suggesting. When I'm initiating, it's much harder for me to do that, and I'm aware much more likely to lose myself, for lack of a better word. Sure. Does that? That makes a lot of sense, because it, w it would seem to me, tell me if this fits how it feels to you, it would seem to me that when you initiate something, that you've got some valence, some energy around it, right? Yeah. So already, the self is strong, the reactivity is already enlivened. You're already, you know, uh, if not stimulated, very stimulable, <laughs> you know, very sensitive, right? And so anything that you say you're stepping into your story of why you called this person, of what made you call this person. Once you're in the story, there's a lot of things that happen. One of which is you're not available to the other person. Another of which is you're recycling that story in the mind and the body, creating this loop of, um, of dukkha, of pain. And so the underlying causes of hunger become unclear to us. See what I mean? You're like in it. So you, you can't see it. You're inside the system, so you can't see the system. Yeah, it's interesting. I, as you say that, I'm aware of almost two. There's the dialogue here. There's at least one more dialogue at here, least. about two or three. That's right. And it, uh, and I, it becomes overwhelming. That's Whereas right. Whereas when I'm reacting and listening, I actually can, I'm able to hold what I hear from them yeah. and hold whatever is the internal and know that they're separate and hold the whole thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I'm wondering how I, do you have any suggestion of how I, I mean, I have the skill of doing it that way. What, do you have a sense of what I could do when I'm mm -hmm. the initiator? Yeah. Well, again, it's very simple. If you understand the fundamental dynamics, like all the stuff I've been saying tonight, then you know, just to be a broken record here, you know that what's happening is that this reactivity is based on underlying hunger, yeah? Mm -hmm. That there's some want or need or fear going on. Mm -hmm. And so as long as we're in that and identified with that, it will keep us in grasping and confusion and locked up and, and so on. But it's this pause that I was talking about where we're stepping out of the identification, out of the world that we've created, into the moment. So the same thing that I was saying over here is it can be very helpful to find the moment to find the body, right? But it could also be pleasant and unpleasant feelings and you know other aspects of, that we know from silent meditation practice, right? So um, that's 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 going to be your sort of uh, ticket out of identification, out of out of the kind of uh, continued creation of samsara. Mm. Thanks. Yes, it's, yeah, yeah. It seems like a, a great practice to bring into the realm of public speaking, mm -hmm. especially those who, myself, who are nervous about public speaking. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like an amplification yeah. of the ego and the self, but also there's not really a dialogue in public speaking. It's more of yeah. there's someone, I'm saying something and listening, I want people to hear me and think yeah. I'm smart and yeah. For all these people leaving, let me say just a couple things. It's, I have no problem with your leaving. I, I don't have a 
lot of self-need around your being here. Um, but a couple things. One is, um, if you're interested, the, there are some little books on the practice out there. Uh, and also, if you want, have any interest in doing this practice or in retreats and so on, you can go to meta.org and get that information. And that's it. Be well and happy. Yeah. Bye-bye. Um, uh, yeah, well, what is stage fright? Right? It's, it's, that, it's that it comes from those same hungers. The fear of being seen or the need to be acknowledged. Same thing. Yeah, right. But also the people aren't engaging me. If I'm talking to them, it's not, it's not a dialogue necessarily. Right. It's interesting. So. Right, yeah. I found something that was helpful is actually when you pause and ground yourself, if you make contact, eye contact with the other person without speaking first, in a way you're grounding yeah. in them as well. Yeah. And then whatever you say comes from a truer place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a very good observation because it points to the power of this practice being interpersonal, mm -hmm. which is, for example, let's say we're in dialogue and I'm all reactive and you know, in my, in my uh, conditioned story, right? Yes, sir, in your head. Right, and I look at you and you're just stable and still, or maybe you say something that just calls me back to the moment, then I have this tremendous benefit. It's like you're my teacher, here and now, and, and, and I'm yours when you're off. And if we're in a larger group, the, the group can hold that space of awareness. is held in the room. Yeah. Yeah, I've been to retreats. I was on a retreat just uh, last fall with a group of a uh, dozen people or so that uh, had some, you know, very well-established meditators who, when someone would get off in reaction, the room would sometimes just ring with this presence. And this person was reacting, and it's like, no. <laughs> Although, you know, sometimes if someone's really seriously hurt and, or disturbed or something, then they'll just keep going because they're oblivious. But that's another story. But by and large, that's part of the beauty of, the, of, of there being uh, this kind of uh, uh, collaborative aspect of practice. Musong's waiting for you. Okay, thanks. Okay, thank you. Um, and... In fact, Kalyanamitta, or spiritual friend, takes on a new meaning when you contemplate this practice. Because everyone can be your spiritual friend, your spiritual teacher, if you meet in this, with this quality of right effort and right, you know, right understanding. Uh, you know, it's, it's very, it's, I, I value it highly. And actually meeting the person where they are. Yeah, well, that's not even where they are. Or that just, says like that there's a day. Yeah, it's you know. just the meeting. Yeah, it's being present. Yeah. You see, because ultimately all of this stuff transcends self-concept. If we if we if we stop only at myself feels better and yourself feels better and you know that whole thing, then we've got sort of like a, a semi-enlightened co-counseling or you know <laughs> something like that. 
But what we're talking about here is real dharma, where there's the understanding that there's just these factors interacting, and it's stepping out of the reaction that is the conditioning that makes those factors react that way, and stilling into presence. And that in the presence, those selves are seen to be an illusion. It's quite profound. So maybe uh, two more. When you talk about the, um, the third noble truth, um, I sort of sense in myself some reluctance to embrace that, uh-huh. a fear around embracing that uh-huh. step. There's almost a comfort in my neurosis. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, it's known territory. It's not, all, it's not all good, but it's a, it's a known evil. That's right. And I'm sort of faced with the prospect of giving that up in exchange for, for essentially what? unknown. That's right. Well, possibly, I'm taking your word and the Buddha's word on it, that yeah. there's a truth out there yeah. and that it's worth it. And if not, I hope I get my money back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's one of the advantages of teaching for free. There's not too many refunds you have to make. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a good observation. Thank you. Yeah. question about the story you told um, with the guy who went on the five-day retreat and then went home to his wife and yeah. was, was actually listening to her. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, um, I was speaking with the, the woman, with my partner, and we both commented that um, boy, if we had five minutes every morning where the first person you saw, whether it was the person you went to work with or yeah. your, your spouse or roommate, and just sat there taking in each other's presence and looking in each other's eyes, um, how different we thought our days would be. And so I was thinking about, with this man who who went home, how couldn't that create a sense of more longing or more um, wanting, more because if she wasn't in that same space, and not only in that moment, but kind of over the the weeks or just, You know, because once you sort of experience yeah. more of that, yeah. to want more versus letting go. Yeah, I hear you. Mm-hmm. I hear you. Mm-hmm. And actually, um, my experience of that is twofold. On the one hand, I say yes, and I deeply treasure my time teaching these retreats because I get to be with people are gradually coming more into the moment and then I've sort of helped invent my new friends, you know. Um, uh, but then you realize that, it, it, you know, it's like where we were talking about what is it to be present with someone when you're free from hunger and what did we have, you know. Be, to be present with another in the wisdom of, of, being, of letting go, of release, is to naturally find the arising of compassion and to naturally find the arising of love, yeah? So it only makes sense that when another person is experiencing and, and living in their capacity for love, that in that moment, to that extent that they are compassionate, 
to that extent that they are loving, they are let go, right? So what that means is my wife, who doesn't practice meditation at all, when she's being kind to me and selfless, in that very moment, she's let go. And if I can just be aware of that quality of presence and not think of it in my terms, right? When, my, when uh, you know, if, if, let's say, one of my sons comes over and, and scratches my head for a minute, in that moment of generosity, he's not self-involved. He's present for me in a way in his way of expressing presence. And this becomes more powerful and more obvious when the presence and the compassion and the love are stronger. But it's the same, it's the same thing. So when you look around, and I would say even in your own experience, this is really very helpful. I, I really would urge you to hear this. When you find yourself being kind, when you find yourself really being compassionate, notice it, please. Please, when you hold the door open for someone, if you have children, when you give them lunch, when you're at, at the office and you do something nice for someone, these little gestures, they're all moments of stepping out of self. They're moments of stepping into the moment that much more. And when you recognize them, they grow. So we'll take just about a minute of loving-kindness practice together now. Just feeling, feeling yourself in this body, in this room, in this moment right now. Feeling kindness towards yourself, acceptance of this body, of this heart-mind, this very present experience. And you naturally want yourself to be happy. May I be happy and free. May I be at peace. May I be at And let the awareness open and expand and fill the entire room with loving kindness. May all beings here in this room right now, without exception, be free from suffering. May all these beings be at peace. And expanding outwards beyond this room, just boundlessly in all directions, above, boundlessly, may all beings be free. And below. and expanding boundless awareness and love to the left, boundless to the right, and in the forwards direction, and to the rear. May all beings in the entire universe, in every possible universe, be free. And I humbly accept the loving kindness <coughs> of every being and creature in return. And I let that love into my heart. May all beings 
share in the benefits of this meditation. May all beings be well and happy. May all beings boundlessly, including myself, be well and happy. May all beings be well and happy. May there be peace. May there be peace. May there be peace. Well, thank you, friends. Um, I don't have any retreats in this area except for this next weekend, a co-teaching with Paula Green out at BCBS in Barry. Uh, next fall, it's not yet publicly announced, I'll be doing a one-week retreat in September. Um, so if you have some meditation experience, that's a great retreat, very special. Uh, actually, it will be at Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, September 20th to 27th. And I only do one of those a year, so if you're thinking about it, keep it in mind. And other than that, you could go to meta.org and see. Usually, I try to have someone keep it up to date. Um, is that your personal site? That's the Meta Foundation that I direct, yeah. And my schedule's on there. And then there's some booklets out, books, they're not booklets, this is really, you know, 130 pages, I don't know, out there. Um, Give some sense of the practice and enjoy. You know, I hope that you got something of benefit. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.